Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Brad, my man, how's everything going? Everything is going pretty well. We are coming off of um, some really good episodes with Shalane and Amelia. Um, if you miss those two, I highly recommend that you check them out. But today, we are going to do something a little bit different. So Steve, why don't you tell listeners what is on tap for today and introduce our special guest. All right, will do. So today, we're taking questions from you. So in the in a previous podcast, we asked for our listeners to submit questions. And in our Growth Equation newsletter, which if you haven't signed up for, please do so. Um, we asked for questions on what, you know, what would you like answered from Brad and myself? So we've got a good slew of questions here that we're looking forward to answering. And to ask those questions will be our special guest, who also doubles as our, I don't know, editor extraordinaire of everything that Brad and I don't really like to do. Um, she takes over and handles it, and that is Brad's lovely wife, Caitlin. Hi, I'm excited to be here. This is this is my first uh, this is my first time participating on your podcast or any podcast. So uh, I hope you all cut me some slack. <laughs> Coming, coming out behind the scenes. I love it. So coming to the forefront. We appreciate all your hard work. Um, I know I do, and I'm certainly sure Brad does. So welcome. Let's get to the questions. Steve and I have not seen any of these questions um, before, so we are going to answer them on the fly. Okay. So you guys got a bunch of great questions. I uh, tried to organize them a little bit. First, we'll do questions that are timely for the the state of affairs that we find ourselves in in the pandemic. Uh, then we'll go to questions that are a little more general and evergreen for the topics that you guys write about and speak about. And then finally, we'll finish off with some fun little grab bag questions. So first question um, comes from Tyler in Ohio. And he asks, or she asks, with the constant bombardment of negative news we're getting in today's world, I feel like I have started defaulting to a negative mental state in my everyday life without even thinking about it. Do you guys have any tactics you'd suggest to retrain your brain to feel more positive on a daily basis? So why don't I... um, I know that, Brad, you constantly are checking the news, so maybe you have some firsthand experience about how you've been able to be so up-to-date on current affairs that are also bleak, but at the same time um, are able to also bring some levity into our our daily lives. I love it. We're getting the behind the scenes on Brad's actual daily life. Well, constantly checking the news is from a reference point of my dear Caitlin's zero news checks a day. So Caitlin does a very good job of not ever checking the news. Um, Sometimes I call her the ostrich because she is burying her head in the sand. And um, she gets upset with me when I say that. So 
Here I am saying it. Um, okay. So do I check the news often? I check the news more often than I want. So um, Tyler, I am right there with you. It is extremely hard um, to stay positive given the state of affairs right now, whether it is the awfulness of COVID, whether it is the awfulness of most major governments, including ours response to COVID, um, social unrest, the politics, which just gets nastier and nastier as um, as we get closer to the election. It's a lot of just, uh. So I think the first thing that I'd say is try not to check the news. And as Caitlin said, I don't do a great job of that. Um, the second thing that I would do is when, when you have an urge to check the news, I'd ask yourself, is it just because you're bored? And if it is, then I would try to replace that time spent checking the news um, with something else. And then the last thing that I would say is the importance of um, some regular boundaries. So I like I gave Caitlin a hard time. She, she doesn't actually bury her head in the sand, but she's of the mindset that if something really big happens, I'll hear about it and I can get by checking the news once or twice a week. Um, on a good day, I check once a day. And generally, it's in the morning after I've done some uh, some work. I will pull up New York Times, maybe go to CNN. And on a good day, that's the only time that I check because as Caitlin does point out, not much big is going to happen that you need to know about from checking news on the internet that you wouldn't otherwise find. Because I do think that once you get sucked into the cycle of being on the internet, it's really, really easy to get into a negative headspace when at an arm's length, everything might be totally fine for you. So Brad tackled the how to keep the negative out. I'm going to tackle how to boost the positive. And I think, you know, where I would go with this is largely read anything in the field of positive psychology, which is all about essentially um, increasing the positive emotions and and looking at, you know, boosting your strengths instead of uh, always tackling your weaknesses. And there, I I would just simply say is um, it's really easy to fall into that trap of like negativity and spiraling downwards. And if you give yourself reminders of things that went well, um, it can, uh, it can, often like shift that kind of dynamic a little bit. So things like gratitude journals, which is, you know, at the end of a week, writing down things that you're thankful for or things that really went well. Um, Participating or doing regular acts of kindness. Um, Journals where you are reminders where you savor joy. So writing down experiences that gave you positive uh, emotions or not even writing it down, reflecting on it and really being intentional about, you know, understanding and remembering, you know, the positive experiences and like savoring them so that like your mind doesn't always go towards the negative. Because I think a lot of times what happens when we're surrounded by, you know, uh, negativity in the world and that attacks or that negativity attracts viewers and clicks and all that stuff, it can really shift our headspace and mindset a little bit. So we have to actively, you know, fight against that with, you know, reminding ourselves of the good times and the things that are going well. And sometimes, you know, acting upon those and doing um, things that elicit gratitude or kindness or joy or what have you, uh, and then reflecting and remembering them. 
And the only thing that I'd add that I didn't say initially, and, and I feel like I've used this analogy quite a bit um, recently, both here on the podcast and, and in writing, but it's worth using again, is sometimes you check the news because you actually want to be aware of what's happening. And I think that's fine. Sometimes checking the news is like scratching an itch. And it's an oddly satisfying feeling when you're scratching it. But at the end of scratching that itch, you're just left with kind of like a raw, gross wound. And the more that you can differentiate between are you just scratching an itch versus are you actually trying to learn something, the better. Because if you're just scratching the itch, that's where you can practice mindfulness, try to ride that urge out, distract yourself by doing something else, etc. Um, and then the other thing is, when you really do want to learn something, then is it something that you can take action on? So if you learn something that's really upsetting about how your local community is responding to COVID, it's only useful knowledge if it changes how you behave. So is it going to change whether or not you go out? Is it going to change whether or not you go to the gym? Is it going to change whether or not you write your city council to um, express your opinion on whatever regulations they have in place? If you find you're constantly checking things, but it's not leading to action, then I would encourage you to either take action or stop checking. Thanks, guys. And I'll add for me that um, part of the reason why I don't check the news very often right now is sometimes before I do, I think about how I feel after I check the news. And usually I just feel really tense and anxious and upset. And so when I recall that feeling, I realize I don't really want, I don't want to feel like that. So I'm just not going to check the news. So, uh, that, that, that's what works for me. Okay. Uh, so our next question comes from Adam in Ohio, and it's another uh, timely one because I think so many of us, I know from my own experience, are playing so many roles and wearing so many more hats than maybe we are accustomed to because either we're used to outsourcing things or we're used to relying on help from others and we might not be comfortable doing so right now. So Adam's question is, what strategies do you recommend for balancing your time when you have multiple important demands or areas you're passionate about that require your attention? So Steve, I'll, I'll give this one to you. Good question, Adam. Uh, one that I struggle with all the time, and I'm sure Brad can tell you I do because sometimes I don't get back to him on, on things that he wants me to do in relation to our joint projects. Sometimes is the understatement of the century. <laughs> but Capital so, all the time. Here, here's the reason for that. So I have my, uh, my college coaching, right? I have my professional coaching. I have the uh, podcast that you're listening to. I do with Brad. I have the podcast on running. I do with John. I have my science running website. We have the growth equation stuff and other book projects and things like that. So I'm I, I'm constantly juggling uh, way more things than I should be. So what I try to do with that is I, I take this kind of a approach I learned from running, which is when I prioritize workouts, I kind of classify them in the, into either am I building something or am I maintaining it? If I'm building it, it means it takes more effort. I have to give it more attention. And it's got to be the priority. If I'm maintaining it, that means I still have to do it, right? I still have to, you know, do enough to make sure it doesn't fall apart and 
still keeps going and all that stuff, but it can't be my main focus. And I take that same approach to what I'm doing um, each week, each day. So what I kind of do is I zoom out and say, what's the big project like for this moment? Okay, this is what I'm definitely building. Maybe there's a second dairy thing under that. Okay, and those get my primary attention. And then other things go into this maintenance category over here. Now in that maintenance category, right, it still means that like I have to check the box, I have to do it. And in that category, I might prioritize things that like have to be done. For instance, Brad and I, like we have to record this podcast. So that time period, no matter if it's, you know, something I'm emphasizing or something that's last on my list, that time period, it's always going to be reserved from that. So that's kind of how I see it from the big picture. And then I just break it down day to day. So what's important for me to get done in this day? What what would I like to get done, but, you know, might possibly get pushed aside? And, you know, kind of prioritizing in that way helps me decide uh, what to do. And the last thing I'll, I'll add is that I also kind of try to, you know, for passions that I'm pursuing or might pursue in the future, I just try to keep the information there. So if there's a future book project I'm doing, I'll have a notebook dedicated to that. And I might be like, oh, I want to get to this. But I know that as long as I'm having the information in some place, like I can always come back to it in a in a couple months and like pick right up where I where I left off. Wow, Steve, you cannot market our podcast any better than the growth equation. I have to record it every week. <laughs> Um, you know, we're, we're nothing but honest on this, uh, on this podcast. So there's the behind the scenes truth. I love recording this podcast. So that makes one of us. Um, (laughs) uh, it is a good question. And my, my, um, my program is different than Steve's. And, um, I, I think a lot of what Steve said makes sense for me. I identify a couple foundational habits or prongs that I build every day around that put me in a position to feel good and perform well. So it's 20 to 30 minutes of a mindfulness meditation practice. It is 50 minutes to an hour and a half of physical movement, some sort of training. And then it is wrapping up no later than 6.15 to 6.30 at night to be with family. Those are non-negotiables. Once those are in place, every day I just ask myself, what's the most important thing I need to move the needle on? And then I make sure that I have the two to three hours it takes to move the needle on that. And I view anything else as extra credit. Um, Are there times when there are multiple projects that feel like I need to move the needle on them? Of course. But generally speaking, I can prioritize and do the one thing every day. Um, and then it's not to say that I just do that one thing. I don't. I do a lot of other things. But the order of those other things, the level of intensity or quality I bring to those other things, um, that's very much secondary to, to, to doing the one most important thing. Because I have found that if I try to do a decent job on five or six things on the same day, what ends up happening is I end up doing a very mediocre job on all of them and then feeling bad about myself like I haven't really gotten much done. Um, so... 
in, in, and then there are calendar obligations, right? So in my executive coaching practice, if I have a coaching client, I'm going to bring my full attention to that person and coach them. And some days I have three coaching clients stacked up, and then that's the one thing. But most days around interacting with other people, there are a few hours. And then in those few hours, I just say, well, what's the one thing I want to move the needle on? Thanks, guys. Uh, for me, I don't, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do this for every question. I don't know. But you guys are just spraying so many thoughts in my head. Um, you know, The question is, what strategies do you recommend for balancing your time when you have so many important demands and things that you're passionate about? And for me... You know, I just try to set my expectations very low. And then anything that I accomplish that day, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I mean, as like the mother of a two-year-old is also trying to work as a lawyer who also um, prides having, you know, real cooked food and, and, and moving my body and things like that. Anytime I'm able to to really accomplish anything on my on my list is a victory. <laughs> so We've got Steve, the king of marketing. I have to record this podcast. Um, if any partners at Caitlin's law firm are listening, Caitlin, if I do anything at all, it's a good day. Um, peak performance. Hashtag peak performance. Um, all right. What's our next question? Okay. Um, our next question comes from Australia, from Braun uh, in Sydney, Australia. And now we're moving on to the uh, more general evergreen topics it says I'd love to hear your thoughts on developing patience when faced with a long-term goal being patient as I plot along is a real sticking point for me I start trying to change things up make it too complicated and I end up sabotaging myself so I think a lot of people can relate to bronze uh, questions whether it's developing a new skill exercising diets so um, Brad what what advice can you give to Braun? All right. Well, the first thing that I would say is that for long-term goals, it is so helpful to divide them into their component parts and then largely forget about the goal itself and focus on those parts. So trying to run an entire marathon at a really strong pace is overwhelming. Getting from mile one to mile two is feasible. And that metaphor applies to just about anything. So it's figure out what your metaphorical marathon is and what the mile markers are, and then define those mile markers and focus on each mile marker. Because what happens when you're focusing on the mile marker is it forces you to be present in the moment. And when you're present in the moment, your brain isn't thinking about this huge goal down the road and then freaking out about it. So it's almost a shift from even needing to be patient to just trying to be present with what's in front of you. The second thing that I do is, and I don't do this as well as I could or should, but when I'm in a situation where I feel like I should be more patient, but I'm not, I should use some sort of self-distancing. And what I mean by that is um, a psychological trick to, to put some space between myself and the situation. So two really good ones are to pretend that a friend is in the same exact situation as you are, and then ask yourself, what advice would you give to that friend? And then another good one is to pretend that you're 10 years older and wiser down the road, and you're looking back on your current self, and what advice would you give to your current self? 
Generally, we are much more patient with our friends. And when we think of ourselves as older, we're much more wiser. And the course of wisdom is often the course of waiting. Now, as I said, I'm not always good at this. I'll, I'll, I'll embarrass myself and give an example um, that is fresh from yesterday. So yesterday evening, I was talking with one of my best friends and former training partners in Oakland before we moved here to Asheville and just getting super jazzed up about the fact that I now own a barbell and some plates in my garage gym. Uh, I haven't attempted a single like one rep big deadlift since the start of COVID. So it's been a while. And after eating dinner, I loaded 400 pounds up on the barbell, didn't warm up and lifted it for a single. That is insane. And in a way, it's for me, it's insane. Some people listen to the show could probably do that with one arm. But for me, that's a ton of weight. And I'm fortunate that I didn't break my back. Um, but that's like, imagine and talk about being impatient. I let my emotion get the best of me. And if any of my friends would have said, hey, does it make sense to try a you know, close to one rep max lift with no warm up five minutes after dinner, the first time you've touched a barbell in six months, I would be like, you're batshit crazy. Um, so there's an example where I failed that also points out how powerful it can be to pause in those moments where you're excited, you want to move fast, you want to do something and just say, you know, what advice would I give a friend and then listen to that advice. Steve, what do you got? Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I love the running the marathon metaphor. That's kind of what I look at or use. So my advice is, is stop looking at the finish line. You know, if I'm in mile one of the of a 26.2 mile marathon, like I can easily freak myself out, think that I'm never going to get there. So like whether it's ignoring the goal or just stop looking at your progress towards it, like you've just got to figure out how to turn that off a little bit. Um, emphasizing what Brad said, I prefer to break it down in any possible way. So any meaningful chunk I can break it into, whether it's just like, you know, giving myself mini goals or mile markers to use that analogy, I, I find that really helpful. And then uh, some other things that work really well for me is, is if, you know, breaking it down doesn't work, I kind of dive into that feeling of like unease or unrest and ask myself, well, why am I in such a rush? Like, why do I need to, you know, achieve this goal in X amount of time? And often when I dive into it and I start evaluating it, I realize that it's a, a false sense of like time pressure on, on that I'm putting on myself. Like it's coming from me, not elsewhere of a lot of times. So that's not always true, but you know, in, in a lot of moments, it's I'm putting this pressure on myself to see progress to get the goal. But whether it happens, you know, three months from now or, or nine months from now, in the grand scheme of things, really doesn't make any difference at all. So, you know, taking the time to do that evaluation. And then the last thing that I'll suggest is, is to just have the ability to put it aside for a moment. So if you're really working on a big project and you're feeling impatient and you feel like you're at a sticking point and you, you know, can't get through it and you're just trying to force it, like step away. You know, sometimes that's just for a couple of days. Sometimes for, it's up for a week or two. You know, we just talked about balancing our, our lives and the craziness of it. 
and the, the craziness of balancing passions and stuff like that. Well, that's one of the benefits you have of having multiple projects. Now, I realize not everyone will be able to do this, but even if it's for a day or a couple hours or whatever have you, is have the courage to step aside, take your mind completely off of it and do something else. And a lot of times when you come back to it, like you're going to figure your way through that, that sticking point and have the motivation to do so. Thanks, Steve. Um, you know, I'm hearing you, you're talking about stepping aside, pausing, reflecting, being patient. And, you know, it's really the most remarkable thing to me about what Brad did last night with the deadlift is that about a month ago, it was my 33rd birthday and I was doing a birthday workout. So I was, you know, running up our driveway 33 times. It's very steep. And then I was doing 33 sets of pushups and 33 squats. And I think Brad got very uh, excited and wanted to participate and have his own challenge. And rather than stopping and thinking, is this a good idea? Why am I doing this? Is this like a mature choice? He decided that he was going to try to do an all-out sprint up our very steep driveway as fast as he could, something he hasn't done in a very long time. And he proceeded to really tweak his hamstring for about a good <laughs> month. My birthday was about a month ago. And I think like just now, he's, he, he just in time to attempt my deadlift. Just in time to attempt his deadlift. Uh, he uh, is back to his hamstring is is healed. So I think that um, you know, you, you I all love have this. So, you, you you both have a lot to teach and a lot to learn. Okay, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go text your coach, Brad, and report on this. For <laughs> this is great insight. Yeah. Um, yes, I could be more patient in in my fitness pursuits. So, Bron, we are right there with you. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, next question is Kelly from New York asks, Steve, this one will go to you because it's initially it's about running, but then I'm sure that you'll expand that it's it can be a lot about a lot of more things. Uh, so, she, um, Kelly says, I've been struggling with hamstring tightness. Oh, that's coincidence over the past several maybe brad will learn something too no <laughs> i've been struggling with hamstring tightness over the past several months to the point where i'm now unable to run or i take some days off and then start running again and then the tightness returns how do i give myself permission to take a break while allowing my hamstring to heal when i'm afraid i lose i'm going to lose fitness am i addicted to my morning run so um, I know you guys have, you know, you've talked about and writing about addictions and how, you know, we often think about the addictions related to more things that we typically think about as being negative, like illicit drugs. But then there's also um, things that we traditionally think of as being positive, like exercise, that you can also become, you know, potentially, quote unquote, addicted to. Um, and it can be disruptive on your life in certain respects as well. So how would you answer um, Kelly's question, I guess, about specifically answering her question about running, but then also about you know, addictions in general? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm right there with you, Kelly. I feel experience this all the time. Um, and I, I think it's normal. So, you know, Caitlin, you mentioned addiction, and I think it's important to understand that we have negative connotations on addiction, but the same kind of neurochemicals um, that drive us to get addicted to maybe things that we don't want to um, are the, 
same neurochemicals that cause us to like feel good and get addicted to things that we associate with positive. And if you look at the research, there's some interesting stuff that says when, you know, uh, regular runners take downtime, whether that's from an injury or an end of season break or, or after marathon break, is they have this like almost withdrawal depressive like feeling. So it's normal in a lot of ways is, is what I'm saying. So are you addicted to your morning run? Well, maybe probably to a degree, right? And to a degree, that's okay, but you have to be able, as you're recognizing, to step back and, you know, um, and deal with that to a degree. So I think to tackle your problem in a couple different segments here. First is, uh, I'm afraid to lose fitness. So there you have to ask yourself, why? Okay, we're, especially right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic Okay, there are no races for the rest of 2020, at least if you're in the U.S. Um, what, what's, what's the big deal with losing fitness? The other part of that equation is you should ask yourself, can I gain that fitness back? Okay, and the answer is almost inevitably yes, and I can gain it back faster if my hamstring is healed and I can train at the level that I, I can. Now, those are all rational things, and rational things don't always work. So, what I would say is, can you do something that doesn't harm your hamstring but allows you to feel like you're maintaining a little bit of fitness, whether that's going on a bike ride, going on a, a nice walk even, um, doing some pool exercise, whatever doesn't hurt the hamstring, right? And doesn't set it back, but feels like you're getting some sort of activity in, I think is a great way to transition into this giving yourself permission to, um, to you know, take a break. See, it is almost your, uh, we'll, we'll keep going with the analogy. It's almost your nicotine gum for your smoking addiction, right? Find something that isn't quite running, that won't hurt your hamstring, but gives you this, you know, ability to make better decisions as you're trying to heal things up. So that's how I would tackle it. And just real quickly on the hamstring tightness is if it's been happening for several months, that's a key cue to go seek expertise if you haven't, because if it hasn't gone away in several months, that means there's probably some larger underlying cause versus, um, just a, you know, a strain or something like that. So that would be my advice. I echo everything that Steve said. I think the only thing I will add is, um, to your question about, are you addicted? The definition of addiction that I most like to use is the continual pursuit of something despite negative consequences. So if every time you train your hamstring hurts, and it takes you for a negative thought loop because now your hamstring's hurting, um, then sure, you could say those are negative consequences. Now, are they the same negative consequences as gambling or alcoholism or opioid use? Of course not. So I think it's also important to put this in perspective um, and to, you know, to, be, to be kind on, to yourself because you could also argue that you know even if your hamstring's hurting, that morning run is super important to your mental health for the rest of the day, and you're going to do it anyways. And if that's a trade-off that you're willing to make, then that's fine. So I just get clear to yourself um, about those trade-offs. 
And um, as somebody that <laughs> that gets injured, I don't think I, I'm addicted. I think I'm just stupid. But as somebody that gets injured by being stupid frequently, um, I can tell you that yes, those first you know week or two that you shut things down feel like you're just losing all your fitness, but it comes back really, really fast. Um, so I would just do what you can to remind yourself of that and embrace the the downtime and the time off. And hamstrings are finicky. Uh, they, they can take a long time to heal. Steve, spot on. I would definitely see an expert. Um, and if you haven't, I would particularly look into isometric exercises. And I'm not a physical therapist, but if you can find one and talk to them about the value of isometric exercises, particularly if it's upper hamstring, um, those are hard to heal in isometrics, which is basically just like holding a position where there's load on the tendon can be extremely effective. Um, Caitlin has been witness the last month. Every night, I just prop my hamstring on her couch and I do like three sets of 30 seconds and... um, that's worked for me. But again, I'm not a doctor or a physical therapist. Um, and I think that it would be wise to see one. All right. Thanks guys. So the next question is from Ravi in Denver who asks, and I'll shoot this to Brad first, to what extent do you consider sacrifice, suffering and hard work essential to achieving the highest levels of performance in any field is hard work or hard work and struggle essential is there a difference if the performance is in sports versus business? Do you see if it's possible for people to attain their highest levels of success without any struggle or obstacles in their way? Oh, wow. This is a great question, Ravi. Whew, where to start? Um, so I first, let's talk definition. So how do you define sacrifice and struggle? If Sacrifice is not being able to do certain secondary goals because you want to be the best at a primary goal, then yes, of course, you're going to have to sacrifice. To truly be great, whether it is national class or world class at something, you generally speaking have to put a lot of time and energy into it. And if you put a lot of time and energy into thing A, then you'll have less time and energy for things B through Z. And we talked about that a lot in in Steve and I's book, The Passion Paradox, that this kind of myth of having it all is just that. It's a myth. Um, So yes, you have to sacrifice. You have to make trade-offs. Now, struggle is an interesting one. I would say that there is often short-term struggle hard days, hard moments, hard weeks, even hard months. But the long-term process of trying to be great should not feel like a struggle. Because if it does, you're eventually going to likely burn yourself out. So if you talk to Olympians that have succeeded um, on that level of performance for quite some time... They'll certainly tell you about really, really rough workouts or rough months or maybe even a rough year. But what they won't say is this whole journey has been a struggle. They'll generally say this whole journey has been incredible. It's been nourishing. I've learned and I've grown. So I think a really good barometer of are you on the right track is not to judge how you feel on any given day but to reflect on, well, how have I felt about the last year or two of this path that I'm on? And then finally, I would say the moment of breakthrough when you're really peaking almost never feels like a struggle for people. 
Um, it's almost always more of a flow state. It's open. It's expansive. It's love. It's letting go. It's your ego getting out of the way. And it's just you being in the moment. And that can happen in a particular workout if you're an athlete. That can happen in a writing groove if you're a writer or if you're making art, it can happen. And if you're an executive in a company, you can have a day, a week, a month where everything is just falling into place. Um, is my meditation teacher, Judd Brewer, likes to say, you know, sometimes you're not working, working is just happening. And those tends to be peak performances and, and there's not an element of struggle. And then the final part of your question I'll address is does it is there a difference whether it's for sport or business? I don't think so. I'd adhere to the same principles, which is yes, you have to make sacrifice. You should be aware of trade-offs and just constantly reflect on are you are you making the right trade-offs for the priorities in your life? And then you should be okay with having rough periods, but the whole journey itself shouldn't feel rough. And then right when you're at a breakthrough, the number one thing that's going to get in your way is struggling or trying too hard. And at those moments, you should just let your mind-body system do what it does. Yeah, you know, I largely agree. I think this is a this is a big question and one to kind of uh, difficult to wrap our heads around fully. Um, I, I think to add on, there's a couple of key points here is that, you know, whenever we ask questions on, do you think it's possible for people to attain the highest levels without effort or whatever you want to call in there? I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that sometimes to achieve the highest level in whatever takes some luck, right? And that's not to discount making it to that level, but that luck is a, a component too. So some will make it there with more or less effort than others, right? And you see that you can see this very clear cut in um, in sports that are pretty objective, like distance running or track and field in general, for example. So I think that that's one addition in there. And then, you know, I kind of see it similar to what you said, Brad, and that you can zoom in or you can zoom out. And when you're all the way zoomed in, sometimes it is a lot of struggle. So struggling through an individual workout or even an individual point in a workout, right? And the struggle can be immense. The intensity of it can be extremely high. But if I zoom out over, you know, that those months or that season, like it's enjoyable as a whole, right? So that's the key there. And then one thing I'd push back on a little bit there, Brad, is you said generally at the peak moments, um, it's not a struggle. I'm not sure if that's entirely true. I think that's how we hope it is. But sometimes even at your best, it's still, a, it's still, you're, you're still struggling to get there. Um, in the research, there's this notion of flow, which you mentioned there of, you know, everything feeling easy, kind of coming together, being in the moment versus a similar state of high performance of peak performance, we'll say, called a clutch state. And the difference there is both are incredibly high performing, right? Both are, you know, best of the best PR days, but the clutch state takes more effort. It's almost like we have to uh, will our way to there a little bit. And I'm not a fan of like forcing your way to performance, but every once in a while it happens. And again, I'm going to take this back to the running world is if I look at my best races, 
uh, which were all, you know, low four minute miles. A couple of them I can think. And I, I just remember, man, I barely felt any pain. I was just clicking. I got done with the race. I was tired, but you feel like you have more there and you're energized. And then there were other races that ran just about the same time, which were, you know, high level performances where I had to fight for like every inch of the last, you know, half of that race or something like that and still came out with the same performance. And I think like that's just that's just life when we're talking about performance. And, you know, the way I see it is your goal is to not get in your way of those flow states and when they happen, not to force yourself and not to like screw it up. But it's also accepting that like, hey, when I'm lined up and it's not clicking and I'm still performing at a high level, it might take, you know, a moment to kind of dig down and see what's there. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great correction, Steve. So I I appreciate you pointing it out. Um, It's like the, the metaphor I would use is at the end of a marathon, even if you're performing your best, it can literally feel like the word that runners will say is that they're hammering. Because every step, it's like, not only is it their legs hammering off the ground, but it feels like there's a hammer pounding them in the quads. And sometimes a clutch performance is just grooving in to that kind of hammering. I think generally speaking, for more intellectual pursuits where you're predominantly using your mind, it's a lot harder to perform from that place um, because you get in your way a little bit more easily if you are trying to write or public speak or lead a meeting and it's coming from a place where you feel like you're hammering. Um, but in athletic pursuits, I couldn't agree more. Uh, thanks guys. For me, I think that, um, having to struggle through things, whether it's running half marathons or, you know, law school and taking the bar for me, the benefit that I've gone, I've gotten out of struggling. It was just, in my own self-confidence of knowing that I can do hard things. And I think that's like a very useful, um, useful thing to have is to have that confidence because then when you face things in the future, either things that you're intentionally putting in front of yourself because you want to do them or you want to see how you're going to be able to, to, um, to do or things that are not intentional, you know, like, you know, life shit that happens, you can, uh, go through it a little bit more comfortably knowing that you can do hard things. I love it. I, um, I, I've recently been listening to Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers, the, um, recorded interviews that they did. I believe it was a few years before Joseph Campbell passed away. Um, for those that don't know it all, Joseph Campbell is the world's, um, or at least was the world's foremost expert on mythology. And Bill Moyers, the PBS um, acclaimed interviewer, and they, they did a six-part series where Joseph Campbell just riffed on life and what he learned from myth. And something that came out to me is the importance of ritual over the course of deep history in how it is completely missing from our society in genuine ways. So what do I mean by that? In the past... Um, a man turns 13 and they go on a crazy hunting expedition with the elders of their tribe and they don't sleep for four nights 
and they have to kill the food, and then they have to come to the um, conclusion that life is cycles of death and rebirth, and you know, on and on and on, really hard things. Today, someone turns 13, and they memorize a Torah portion, and their parents throw them a $30,000 party, and then they're a man. You could say the same thing for women. The rituals were different, but women also had to go through these really strenuous rituals, and that is no longer. Fast forward. Um, if you know having your bar mitzvah wasn't hard enough, well, then you get to join a frat, where the ritual is that you get pissed drunk with a bunch of other bros. That's not a ritual. That's a joke, and it's terrible that that happens. Um, so I I couldn't agree more with the you know the doing hard things is something that is important and that I think is lacking. Um, that said, as I continue on this rant, then there's like the cult of doing hard things for the sake of doing hard things. So I recently heard about this guy that fasted for ten days and then deadlifted five hundred pounds. You know. It, my, my initial thought was very judgmental, and I'm, I'm trying not to be so judgmental of a person. Um, and then I'm like, okay, if that was undertaken with like a spiritual advisor to really learn from that, and, and that was couched in context of growth, sure. If you were just doing that so you could tell all your friends that you fasted 10 days, and then like that also doesn't make sense. So it's doing hard things, but situating them in the right context where you can really learn and grow from them. Okay, so now we are off to the more uh, lighthearted grab bag part of the conversation and the, the Q&A. So a lot of people, a lot of people asked about your reading habits, what you read. I think a lot of people are probably very impressed and intimidated by the uh, breadth and depth of your um, of your reading. And so we'll do a couple a couple questions about that. So the first is from Marshall from Missouri and others asked um, about your favorite books or what kind of what books you would recommend for others to read. So I, I kind of thought about this question like there are books that are like eating your vegetables where they're like books you should read because it's good for you. It'll make you healthy. You'll be strong. And then there are books that are like candy where it's like just totally pleasure, entertainment, your no better for it tomorrow, except you enjoyed it in the moment. So I guess for both of you, what are some books that you would recommend that are vegetables? And what are some books that you would recommend that is candy? So uh, I guess, I guess, Steve, you're up first. Oh, man. Oh, uh, books. Let me look in my library next to me here. Um, I like the vegetables and candy, but sadly, most of my my reading is vegetables. I would say, I am I am the world's like slowest reader. I do not read fast, so when I read something, uh, I make sure that you know it's something that I want to get something out of. For my candy books, I would say that I am more likely to listen to them on. Um, you know, audio books, but to give a couple books that I, I like, I would say, um, anti-fragile is one by Nassim Taleb that it's going to be a very vegetable read that I, I like a lot. I like, um, meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, I think for coaches out there range by David Epstein is a wonderful book. 
And for, let's say, philosophy and maybe a little bit more of a candy book for me is Why Buddhism is True by uh, Robert Wright is a really good book that I enjoy. And yeah, we'll we'll go with those as I peruse my library and look for others that I think would be good. What about you, Brad? I just love reading. So I, I struggle to even differentiate between candy and vegetables because just about every book that I read tends to feel like candy. And if it doesn't, generally speaking, I put it down. So I will just give some recommendations of um, authors that have had a big impact on me. So people that come to mind, um, George Leonard, and particularly his book, um, Mastery, and then also his book, The Way of Aikido. Eric Fromm, his books, Escape from Freedom, To Have or To Be in the Art of Loving. Um, Anything by Mark Epstein, uh, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Advice Not Given, and Thoughts Without a Thinker. Those have been super formative books for me. Leslie Jameson wrote a book called The Recovering and The Empathy Exams that are phenomenal books. Uh, Robert Persig, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and Lila are two of my favorite books. Um, Anything by Tara Brock is really, really good reading. And then I guess, you know, maybe the quote unquote candy for me would be fiction. So everything that I just mentioned was nonfiction. Um, I love getting lost in a good novel. Uh, So some of my favorite novels of all time are The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen, Middlesex by Jeff Eugenids. I might be mispronouncing his last name there. Um, More recently, I've been reading James McBride. So Deacon King Kong was absolutely hilarious. Um... Uh, James McBride's other book, and I'm almost done with it, but the name is eluding me. Um, anyways, any novel by James McBride, I think, is is worth reading. Um, yeah, so that that's a handful. And maybe to zoom out, it's just like, so how do you, how do I read so much? I I tend to read pretty quickly, um, and I just I love reading, so I prioritize it, and I both schedule it into my day. And when I have open space in my day, uh, I never will go... And I don't say this with any judgment because there's phenomenal TV on. I'm sure Caitlin could tell you all about it. But I never go to the TV. I just go to a book. Um, so it's it's a mix of both scheduled reading time and then just always having books around that I can pick up. So, so to kind of piggyback off that, since mine is different. As I said, I'm the world's slowest reader, and I mean that. I suck at reading. Um, I hated reading all the way. I don't think I read a full book except for Once a Runner until um, I got through halfway through college. So, which Once a Runner is a fantastic book. That's my number one fiction book because I do not read fiction very often. Um <laughs> That might have more to do with my running obsession than anything else, but great book. But I, you know, I, I take, I do things a little differently. So with my reading, I always try to read before bed. So I make it part of my nighttime bed ritual to set aside at least 30 minutes to try and read something. And then I have throughout the day, Essentially, whenever I get in that like brain fog period of like 
not being able to work or focus or whatever, that's my signal or cue to turn to reading and I'll read something. And the other thing that I do a little bit different is I will read multiple books at once. Um, generally something that is very heavy or deep, like a textbook or research style kind of book. And then something more light, uh, maybe another non, I read a lot of nonfiction, but another nonfiction book, but maybe more of some pop psych or uh, pop self-help style stuff uh, that is much more easygoing, lighter material. And, you know, wherever my brain is at, I kind of jump to that kind of book. And that allows me to not get tired of reading, which is someone who now loves to read but used to hate is really important. And then, as I said, books that I'm not really trying to take too much away from, but maybe, you know, enjoy or learn a little bit. Uh, I will listen to on my commute uh, when I'm with Audible or with uh, the local library's Audible books, which is generally more history and, uh, you know, biographies and things like that. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, what I would say, Steve, there is that well, of course you're a slow reader because you just said that the only time that you read is when you have brain fog or right before you're going to sleep and presumably you're tired then. And that's totally... No, okay. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just a really slow reader. Well, and, okay, then and you're a really slow reader. <laughs> no. um, but again, like, you know, being values neutral, Steve engages in more projects than me at any given point in time. He's significantly more likely to just skim research journals than I am. And that generates a completely different kind of knowledge than the kind of knowledge of reading sociologists and anthropologists that were writing between the 40s and the 50s. And I think part of what makes us a good team is that I tend to go deep on the latter and Steve tends to go deep on the former. Um, but there's no right way to go about it. It's a mix of what you like, what makes you tick. Um, as long as you're getting you know, that intellectual nourishment, it can come from anywhere. At least that's how I, I like to think of it. I'm partial to books because I love reading and I write books. Um, but there are phenomenal trade journals and you can go down esoteric rabbit holes of just about anything. Um, so it's really just kind of matching matching your desires to the material. And then I would say carving out time to do it. Yeah. One thing I'd add there since you mentioned it is I read a lot. You, you got it right. Like I read a lot of journals and what I tend to do there is I tend to reserve a big block of time uh, to go what I call a rabbit hole. Um, so I'll read a journal review article on a topic and inevitably from that review, I'll see other studies, other research, which it cites, which interests me. And then I'll just go down the rabbit hole for those, again, two, three, four hours, whatever I have blocked off. I don't do that frequently, but maybe once or twice a month. And that's how I try to tackle like gaining deep knowledge on, again, a lot of scientific uh, topics so that I understand it from the source and not just the... Uh, the kind of pop, uh, easy, um, you know, review of it. But I think those pop easy reviews as someone who writes books that, that cover that. I think those are a great introduction. And a lot of times I'm introduced to topics that I later go deep on through, uh, through reading some nonfiction books in that area. 
Okay. Well, I'll just add two things. One is shout out to audiobooks. It's the only way for the past five years that I've really took in uh, any books. And it's awesome. I listen to books when I'm walking, when I'm driving, when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning. And um, some people, you know, scream from a mountaintop that you're not really reading. But I would argue that I'm actually immersed into the book with all of the the, the, the book coming to life um, with the voices and the character. And so, I, you know, I, I could stand on my mountain and, and holler that back at you. You're aware, um, Caitlin, that the royalties that come into our joint bank account from audiobooks are about one eighth of those from hardcover books. Well... Your books don't have the 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 benefits of like the different voices and the characters. So I do agree that for a nonfiction book, it might be better and you want to highlight nonfiction books and sticky note refer back. But for a fiction book, you can't beat the audible version. Okay. It- I will just add in there, there's this great app called Libby, which essentially syncs your library's uh, audiobooks to yourself. So if you're looking at getting into audiobooks and want to for free, they have tons, I would suggest that. Uh, And then the other thing I'll say is, is shout out to Joseph, who asked about your reading habits, but you guys covered that. Uh, pretty well in your last question. So I think we'll just do one more question for you guys. Um, this one's from Marshall from Missouri. And, you know, his question was general, kind of like, what do your routines look like each day? But since you guys answered that a little bit in different questions you, you asked, I'll just, um, kind of narrow that more. Like, are there, are there a handful of things that you got that you try to protect every day or that you try to make sure that, you do every day and then everything else is is kind of filler. What are the things that are most important to you to, to accomplish in a day uh, in order to make it feel like um, like a, a day well spent? Uh, yeah. So for me, and I, I alluded to most of these earlier, so I'll be quick. It's 20 to 30 minutes of mindfulness meditation. It is some kind of physical training either strength training during the week or on the weekends. If I have a little bit more time and I'm with, um, I'm with Caitlin and my son, we go hiking and, um, then really trying to be good about completely shutting all devices down at six 30 and then six 30 on is just family time. Uh, and then I try to, as I said earlier, schedule one, two hour or so block of work that is undistracted, just me and the most important thing that I want to do that day. Uh, And then outside of that, I just have a running list of books, as I mentioned, books that I'm reading, projects that I'm working on. And depending on what kind of mood I'm in that day and where those various projects are at, after I do the most important thing, I will tackle what makes the most sense to tackle on that day. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of similar. I protect time for running, especially if I'm not hurt and not doing the same thing as our earlier um, question asker and trying to fake my way through an injury. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of times because I live in Houston, Texas, that time period is is 
kind of reserved for me, which means in the summer, it has to be very early or very late. And normally I try and get it very early because of the heat and humidity. So I protect time for running. Nowadays, that's, you know, I shoot for at least five days a week. If I get six, great. Um, It all depends on my body how long it is during each day. My kind of minimum is 30 minutes. My average is probably 45, 10 hour. And I just kind of run. And then every once in a while, I do something hard to remind myself what hard is. And that I uh, that time I protect. And then besides that, you know, as I said earlier, I have a lot of different projects. So I just kind of cycle through them. I would say the big thing is I I feel better when I get something done every day. So even on, we'll call it, you know, off days, I try and even, you know, give myself a little bit of time to knock out something that uh, makes me feel like I'm I'm having progress. And then similar to Brad, you know, after dinner, I kind of protect that time for myself and my wife and we like to take our dog on long walks and other stuff like that. So, you know, that's kind of it. I try not as someone who lived like with a routine for the vast majority of my life, a very strict routine in terms of running. I found myself getting away from like being so, um, you know, strict on my routine, except for like a very handful of things. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, It'd be nice if one of those projects that you alternate could be time on the phone with your collaborative partner and good friend Brad. How do Brad, we get Brad, you get enough you get enough time on the podcast, man. Don't don't be needy now. Oh man. Um cool. Do we have anything else, Caitlin? No, that was awesome. Thank you guys and thank you for inviting me to join. This was my first podcast. Listeners, do not hold back. Let Caitlin know what what you thought. Um, leave a review. Uh, review when you leave your review. Think about Caitlin, not Steve and I, because it will inevitably be higher if you do it that way. Um, thank you for bearing with us. Thank you to everybody that submitted questions. Let us know if you enjoyed this. If you like this format. Um, if you didn't, we'll never do it again. And if you did, we will revisit this maybe quarterly or something like that. Um, cause it's certainly neat to know what's on your mind and share that just about always Steve and I are going through the same kinds of challenges and processes as you are. So, so it's all, are we missing anything, Steve? It's all up to you listeners. All on your shoulders. Do you want it or not? Let us know. Steve, I have to record this podcast, Magnus. <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I'm just saying if I don't, Brad would, you know, uh, drive down to Texas from uh, from Asheville with his new new gun that he'll buy and, you know, attack me in my house or something if I if I don't record the podcast. That's what I meant. I enjoy it. It's just... You know, I don't want to get on your bad side, Brad. I have no idea what you're talking about, Steve. We are going to edit the part about me buying my new gun from Asheville out. Um, so we'll just uh, do the swoosh about three and a half minutes earlier. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. 
Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others. Um, also,